0: Welcome to Manage This, the podcast by project managers for project managers. This is our roundtable discussion about what matters most to you, whether you're a professional project manager or working toward being certified. We want to be a spark to light your imaginative fire and give you some perspective and encouragement. And we do that by drawing on the experience of others who are knee deep and sometimes deeper in the world of project management. I'm your host, Nick Walker, and with me are the experts at this table, Andy Crow and Bill Yates. And Andy, we're going to hear from a very special guest today.
1: We've got a great guest uh, this morning. Mark Levinson's joining us. He's the author of several books and uh, a really well-known person in the
0: nonfiction world. Dr. Mark Levinson is an economist. He's an expert in international trade and globalization, international finance and finance regulation. He's written for, among others, Time Magazine, Newsweek, Harvard Business Review, the Daily Journal of Commerce in New York, and The Economist in London. He's advised Congress on transportation and industry issues. He's a consultant and an author of six books. Mark, welcome to Manage This.
2: Well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you.
0: Now, Mark, we're here in Georgia, and uh, you have a little bit of a Georgia connection as well.
2: I lived in Atlanta for a number of years, uh, in the 1970s and early 80s. I am a proud alumnus of Georgia State University's uh, graduate school. All right. And uh, so, yes, I do have fond memories of Georgia.
1: Mark, i got to ask, this is Andy, what part of town did you live in?
2: Uh, I lived for a while in Druid Hills and then in Grant Park. Excellent, excellent. And my wife
1: uh, also joins you as uh, having done her graduate work at Georgia State. So got a connection there.
0: All right. Very good. One of your most fascinating books is titled The Box, How the Shipping Container Made the World Smaller and the World Economy Bigger. Now, Mark, I have to admit that for years when I lived in Seattle, I would drive by the port and see the loading Mm. and the unloading (laughs) of the container ships. But not once did I ever think how does this method of transporting goods affect me? I think maybe we take for granted something that's really changed the life of every person who's bought something manufactured outside this country. The shipping
2: container seems like a very mundane product. It doesn't seem like anything that particularly needed to be invented or developed. Uh, But in fact, uh, up until the 1950s, it didn't exist. And there was a prolonged period of Uh, developing uh, containerization, uh, developing standards so that a container could be sent around the world, and then of of businesses changing their practices so that they could take advantage of the container. So the container had very substantial effects on international trade. It, It made globalization possible, and my book is really the story of how this happened.
1: Mark this is uh interesting for me this is Andy and as I look at this and think about it I've worked in the supply chain world uh supply chain logistics I've done projects, I've managed projects for companies that, uh, that provide this service for uh, large shipping companies, and it is something uh, we take for granted. So uh, project managers have to interface with this kind of world a lot, with cartons and containers, um, cases, cases in, cartons out, all of it going on shipping containers. Tell us what the world was like before that.
2: Sure. Um, before the shipping container was developed, uh, most goods were shipped internationally in a form that uh, was referred to as break bulk, and break bulk is exactly what it sounds like—small uh, pieces of of things. Uh, if uh, you would go to a dock, uh, would have gone to a dock in the 1950s, you would have seen. Uh, bags of products and you would have seen barrels of products and you would have seen wooden crates and you would have seen drums and and all kinds of different things. And each of these items separately would have come in on a truck or a train. It would have been put into a warehouse alongside the dock, would have been taken out of the warehouse, brought onto the dock, would have been put with two or three other items onto a pallet. Uh, The pallet would have been lifted into the hold of a ship. Each of the items would have been taken off the pallet and stored in the hold of the ship. And then at the other end of the voyage, this process would have been repeated. Uh, A typical ship in those days, and those were pretty small ships by modern standards, but a typical ship sailing the Atlantic in those days might have carried 200,000 separate items. And each of those items had to be handled repeatedly. So shipping was a very labor-intensive process. It could take a week or two to unload and reload a ship. A ship spent as much time in port being loaded and unloaded as they did at sea. And uh, a lot of uh, cargo was delayed. So because of of this, it was actually uh, impossible to have what we think of as a modern supply chain Uh, You shipped your cargo, and it got to the destination when it got there. You couldn't plan on it. You couldn't organize your production around it. And that's what the container changed.
1: You know, Mark, um, when you look at this and when you think about some of the innovations in supply chain management, Japanese management, which really was coming into fruition around the same time, it'd be Mm -hmm. interesting to know how they influenced each other. I don't know if we we have a lot of insight into that, but Japanese management – Came up with this idea of just in time or JIT. And just in time management, of course, means the inventory arrives at the last responsible moment. Mm. So you have, uh, you keep very low inventories. Uh, they get there right at the last minute, and then it puts a, a focus on quality because there's not a lot of parts to waste. There's not a lot of inventory. If you if you mess up this particular part, you're going to have to wait for another one. And it builds, uh, it really focuses on building these close relationships with suppliers. So the interesting thing about this, I feel like just-in-time management really couldn't have evolved properly without this innovation.
2: Uh, do you agree with that? Yes. Now, just-in-time management began in Japan, and it could begin without the container because it involved uh, local shipping from from one nearby plant to another nearby plant. But if you go back to the uh, 1980s, you recall that the Japanese manufacturers, auto manufacturers, extended just-in-time shipping across the Pacific. Hmm. Okay, they were producing. Uh, parts, engines, transmissions, and and other components in Japan, and they were delivering them to assembly plants here in the United States on a predictable schedule. That could not have happened without the shipping container. So uh, the container made uh, what we think of as the modern global Mm -hmm. supply chains possible. Uh, It made it possible to ship in very large volume at low cost, and it made it possible to have a reasonable assurance that what you were shipping would get where it was supposed to be at a particular time. That really was uh, not possible before the container.
3: Mark, this is Bill. This uh, There's so many concepts that are just intriguing to me as you tell this story in the box. And uh, certainly one of the, the probably the key characters, Malcolm McLean. And when I look at uh, when I'm reading this story about this character and this entrepreneur, one word just keeps popping up to me. And that word is disruptive. Uh, this, you know, as you described from the uh, from the beginning, the box is simple, right? It's a forty foot container. It's it's a box. But taking that technology, that simple technology, into this industry was so disruptive. Um, you know, I think of the impacts that you 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 talk about in the book to the longshoremen, uh, the governments, the industry, and what their expectations were. And uh, even, you know, even fast forwarding to the ICC, and I look at, at this, this idea of being disruptive, and I, it's something that we as project managers have to deal with, with every project that we do. The project creates something new. It's maybe a new technology or new service, and it's disruptive. So I'm just curious what, you know, when you reflect back on the story and the research that you did uh, regarding the box, What advice do you have from either, you know, actions that McLean and his team took uh, that we can parlay over to project management as to, you know, how do we handle the disruptive nature of this technology and what we do with it?
2: Well, the first thing I would say is that um, people have attributed uh, a lot of foresight to Malcolm McLean retrospectively. Right. And, And this is. This is mostly misplaced. Okay, Malcolm McLean did not set out to create a globalized economy. Right. Malcolm McLean ran a trucking company, and he set out to increase his profits. Uh, his concern was that uh, he was running trucks up and down the East Coast, and the highways were getting increasingly congested. This was in the days before interstate highways, and so his original idea was to buy a ship and send trucks up and down the coast on a ship rather than uh, over the road in order to avoid highway congestion. Okay? That doesn't sound very dramatic. Hmm. Okay? Uh, and and then as this concept developed, uh, he took one action after another. Each of them intended to make money in the transportation business. And so the, the modern uh, intermodal freight transportation industry developed out of this but Malcolm McLean wasn't sitting there with a master plan uh, of how he was going to reshape the world economy. He was sitting there with a business that he wanted to develop and and try and eke out a little more profit this week, this month, and find ways to serve more customers. So I, I think that's the first thing I really want to point out here: that, that uh, these great innovations don't start out necessarily by somebody saying, "I want to change the world." Um, that's really quite different from what's going on today, for example, uh, in the, the tech industry where uh, you know, Silicon Valley is full of, of 22-year-olds advertising their innovations and how much their innovations are going to change the world. Um, Malcolm McLean's innovations were designed to make money, and if <laughs> they changed the world in the process, that was great, but that was not uh, his his master plan.
1: You know what? What? Uh- uh, Mark, as I look at this and think about uh, think about the work he did, it reminds me of a saying we have uh, in the South that sometimes a blind pig gets an acorn, and I wouldn't exactly describe him as a blind pig, but he certainly got uh, one heck of an acorn, didn't he?
2: Well, I think he did. And he understood that uh, things changed that that businesses changed, uh, his customers changed, business models changed. So, Uh, he saw that there was, to to your question, he saw that there was a lot of opportunity uh, for disruption. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, to take people back to the 1950s when when Malcolm McLean began developing container shipping, uh, truck lines were truck lines, railroads were railroads, ship lines were ship lines. They didn't really uh, intersect. They were entirely different businesses, and they were all heavily regulated. And so the attitude of the people uh, in the Business was not really a very customer-oriented attitude. Uh, the rates they chose, they, they charged, were approved by the government. The routes they served were uh, approved by the government, and uh, excuse me, and uh, and so um, there was not a, a market orientation. And um, you know, McLean came in and said, "Wait a minute, you've got customers who don't really care about." Your beautiful ships, and they don't care about your trucks. They don't really; they're not interested in all that stuff. They just want to get their freight from here to there
1: mm.
2: uh, on a on a reliable basis. And for the day, that was actually a very revolutionary way of looking at the freight industry.
3: That's that's an excellent point, Mark. Uh, again, this is Bill. One of the things that I think that you hit on a theme in the book, and you're 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 hitting it again here is, you know, McLean really didn't he didn't have some master plan where he looked twenty years into the future and then pictured. Uh, Nick one day in Seattle seeing all these you know cargo (laughs) ships and it wasn't that at all he was looking to make money and to prosper and uh, through that you your point is the innovation takes place in fits and starts Uh, again kind of a nice analogy to a train you know that to get that train started it it's kind of painful at first it's got to pick up momentum and get everything going the right way So to me, that's a good takeaway to uh, project managers in terms of our need to be flexible and to learn as we go. Uh, There are going to be changes in innovation that we'll be able to take advantage of, but we cannot anticipate or or plan that we're going to know exactly what's going to play out and how it's going to play out. We have to be flexible and adaptable as we go.
2: I think that's right, and I I think that the, the other point of this is that uh, nobody is interested in your project? Right. right. Your project. Your project is there to help uh, someone achieve a business purpose, uh, and uh, the, the the customers, the clients may be interested in achieving the business purpose. Uh, the project is of interest only because that may be the most efficient way to do that at this point in time. Right. and and so people need to keep their eye on the ball in, in terms of uh, what the customers needs are
1: it's a means to an end you know Mark one of the one of the things that strikes people who study project management is how many innovations in project management things we use to this day came out of research done in the 1940s and it's interesting because you can see the 40s were this time when a lot of smart people, we're turning a lot of attention but just because of, uh, of, of world economics, because of World War II, uh, because of some of the technological innovations that were taking place. Um, one, of the, one of the terms that popped up in the 40s that has really gotten a lot of attention today is this idea of creative destruction. And, uh, you know, creative destruction can take on a number of things, but the, the way we like to look at it is, uh, you know, new products replacing old products. And this is, this is classic creative destruction yes. right here. The thing that strikes me whenever you see creative destruction or whenever I've seen it take place is that there's often a lot of resistance. Uh, the market forces, government forces, regulation, people making money out there do not like Um, uh, these innovations. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what happened with the shipping container uh, in regards to some of the resistance that it met.
2: Well, there's resistance, uh, certainly, uh, in in all kinds of places. And I wouldn't discount the fact that there's often resistance among customers. Hmm. Uh, I'll I'll return to that in a second. But, But when uh, containerization got started and again this began domestically in the, the United States on a pretty small scale in 1956 and was purely domestic uh, until 1966 when when the first containers moved across the Atlantic Uh the dock workers were very uh, unhappy with this the dock workers unions because they stood to lose thousands and thousands of jobs hmm. uh, as I described earlier uh, you had perhaps 200,000 items being loaded onto a typical ship sailing the Atlantic. Well, that's a lot of time, a lot of labor time um, spent uh, moving all of those items and lowering them into the hold and pushing them into place in the hold and taking them out of the hold. And the dock workers were concerned that they were going to lose a lot of jobs. They were right about that. Uh, Somewhere on the the order of 90% or more of the uh, Hmm. longshore jobs uh, in the United States disappeared because of containerization. So it was a major concern uh, you had uh, the ports uh very concerned about containerization why well traditionally the major ports were in congested urban areas uh, manhattan brooklyn san francisco east london uh, these were places that were not well suited to container shipping because for container shipping you need a much uh, larger docks you need docks that can handle a very large and heavy container cranes you need storage space for the containers near the dock you need good truck access or, or rail access to the port and so it was no longer practical to have a port in uh, lower Manhattan for example well you can imagine that the, the big port cities were not real excited about this and and they fought off the container the uh, railroads were not very happy about containerization either why well most of the u.s carriers made a lot of money putting freight in box cars (laughs) so they wanted their customers to use box cars and and the idea that they would put uh, a a container on a a dedicated rail car had not really uh uh, didn't have much traction in the rail industry many of the railroads saw no reason at all to do that so there was a, a lot of opposition But but then you have the question of, so who needs this service? Because Malcolm McLean uh, sent the first uh, container ship sailing around from from Newark to Houston in 1956. Mm -hmm. But when he did that, you didn't have a lot of people in industry saying, oh, wonderful, there's a container. We've been waiting for this. Uh, Companies needed to be shown that this could benefit their business, uh, that they could take advantage of this not only to reduce their cost of shipping goods, but potentially to organize uh, their production in a different way. Hmm. Uh, And this took time. Uh, For example, uh, in in the 1950s, uh, many factories were located in in urban centers. Uh, Brooklyn was one of the great manufacturing centers of the country. Why? Because it was helpful to have your factory near the docks. Well, with a container, you didn't really need to have factories near the docks. Uh, you could put your goods into a container anywhere and, and ship them to the docks without much difficulty. So many companies uh, in the manufacturing business uh, over time began to relocate their facilities. Uh, they, they didn't need to be in Brooklyn. They could be in Pennsylvania, which meant that they didn't have to have a three-story factory. They could have a one-story factory with a more modern a production process. Hmm. So there were a lot of changes that needed to uh, take place here uh, as, as businesses learned to take advantage of the possibilities that uh, containerization created. And, and then the same thing was true uh, in the 1980s when we started to see the growth of international supply chains. Uh, this was made possible by uh, the container plus the advent of, of cheaper telecommunications and, and computer uh, technology. And and it t- took a while as, as companies figured out the best way to do this. So there's a lot of adaptation needed before innovations like this actually have a great economic impact.
3: Mark, I get that, and I, uh, I can agree with that on a personal level. I remember the first time I was able to deposit a check using my phone instead of having to get in my car and drive to a bank in brick and mortar. And I thought, okay, this is pretty neat, but, boy, i got a lot of concerns. You know, how secure is this? Is it really going to show up in my account? You know, it was it was disruptive technology, but me as a customer, it took me a while to figure out if I really trusted it and did mm-hmm. I want to embrace it.
1: And what this does, it changes the winners and losers, doesn't it? It does. Because now there are, no, you don't necessarily even need somebody in the U.S. to review that check. Um, right. You know, physically, you might for regulate, regulatory purposes, but you mm-hmm. don't have to have somebody sitting right there doing that. And it changes the whole dynamic.
2: Right. Sure. One way, of, one way of thinking about uh, transport costs is that they create a, a trade barrier yes. uh, internationally, but also domestically. Uh, when, when transport costs were high, it was possible to have a factory in your town that served your local market. And, and you didn't have much competition because other factories in other towns had pretty high costs to ship their products to your town. Uh, when containerization came in and, and lowered freight transport costs pretty dramatically, it opened up competition. But there were a lot of losers because many of these small local companies could no longer survive with,
0: with greater competition. Hmm. So, Mark, what do you do if you're on the losing end? <laughs> you know, the, the, if, if, you're, if you're doing creative destruction, what if, if your job is being destroyed you know mm. uh, what's the takeaway here that we can uh, we can apply today
2: well first of all uh there are winners as well as losers and and that's true even where there's a lot of destruction going on again let me draw on the, the dock workers while it's true that about 90 um, percent of the, the dock worker jobs are no more the dot jobs that remain are now very highly paid very highly skilled jobs mm. And no one had ever imagined in the pre-container era that you would have dock workers earning $150,000 a year in the United States. Uh, That's not uncommon now. Uh, They've got uh, very difficult jobs. They've got very demanding jobs, but they're very well paid in those jobs. And and so you have had people who've been able to navigate this system have come out of it fairly well. Uh, In some cases, there's no quick answer uh, again, uh, to talk about the, uh, the, the creative destruction in certain cities, if you saw what happened in a place like Brooklyn, uh, where, where uh, container shipping came in and uh, the shipping industry basically moved out, it moved from Brooklyn to New Jersey in the 1960s, and uh, thousands upon thousands of jobs were lost, and, and it took Brooklyn 20 years to recover from that. There was no quick answer. Uh, Brooklyn uh, the first step was realizing that this isn't going to come back we're not going to be able to uh, turn Brooklyn into a container port no matter what you'd like to think because uh, it's not geographically well suited to that purpose and so you need to stop dreaming about bringing back the past and instead uh, look for a different future where uh, there might be some uh, some advantages in terms of companies, I think it's much the same. They, they need to look at, at uh, how this technology is going to make a change. And I think many companies navigated it quite successfully.
1: We've seen a lot of, of that in the project management world. You know, there was a time, if you go back uh, 20 years ago, um, and let's just take the information technology world, uh, pre-globalization, pre-some uh, of the friendly treaties, or at least some of the uh, have those treaties having absorbed their way through the economy, you had teams of developers sitting in a room together uh, with a project manager. A lot of times, uh, and now uh, with globalization doing what it's done, there's there's a lot of education that's gone on in the world. There are some incredible software development hotspots: India, China parts of uh, the Ukraine and Russia, and where you can get labor at a very efficient cost. A lot of times what the project management world has had to do, they've had to develop, they've had to adapt, and they've had to figure out, okay, we can still manage projects here. We have to figure out how to lead virtual teams and how to do this, uh, operate in a new economy. But it's the winners and losers. That's just sort of a part of, uh, of globalism that we're, uh, that we're having to deal with all the way around, isn't it?
2: I think that's right. Mark,
3: one other question I wanted to ask you about, and I think it's advice for uh, many of the project managers that are out there, is dealing with regulatory bodies. Um, one of the things that impressed me in this story was the way McLean uh, navigated and worked his way around the ICC, the Interstate Commerce Commission. You know, he took some big, bold, audacious risks, you know, selling one business, selling the trucking business and purchasing the uh, shipping with uh, the hopes, the intent, that he was going to be able to get his way and get approval by the ICC. And that wasn't just a one-time move. He had to continue to navigate the waters with them, so to speak. Uh, What were some of the tricks or or tips that you saw as you uh, researched McLean that perhaps some others can take as we figure out how we deal with regulatory bodies?
2: Well, I think one of the tips from McLean uh, certainly is, is that Uh, You know, back in in grad school, back in my days at uh, Georgia State University, as we discussed, I recall taking a class about uh, optimizing and satisfying. You remember learning about that? And (laughs) there are people who are very concerned about coming up with an ideal solution to problems. Uh, Malcolm McLean was not one of those people. Hmm. Uh, He was he dealt the hand he was played, or played right. the hand he was dealt. He, he did whatever he could at the time and then tried to improve things later on. And so I think this is a very important way of, of thinking about business. Uh, he was not concerned about creating the ideal uh, container system. Hmm. He was not concerned about getting the perfect regulation in place. He was not concerned about um, making the best possible uh, arrangements for intermodal shipping. He was concerned about doing business and making a profit.
3: Got it, right.
2: And if if he could do his business today, uh, he would do it, and he would uh, try to improve it tomorrow. And, and that played into his uh, uh, relations with regulators as well. Uh, hmm. There were some things that he very much would have liked to do, like create his own container train service. He couldn't do it. Okay. He found other ways that would do something similar. They weren't quite as good, but they would let him achieve part of his goals. Hmm. He took what he could get, and he kept on working. And and I think that that's really a, a very uh, important lesson here that uh, you, you 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 change and you know the, the perfect can be be the enemy of the good.
0: Right.
1: This is really about adaptability, isn't it?
2: It really is.
0: The box: How the shipping container made the world smaller and the world economy bigger. That's the title of the book. I, I guess it's a good example of of uh, you know something that forces us to think outside the box. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so you've got a you've got a new book out, Mark, and we want to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit. Tell us about it.
2: My new book is called uh, "An Extraordinary Time: The End of the Postwar Boom and the Return of the Ordinary Economy." Uh, this is a book that takes a look at the history of of the postwar uh, half century, really, it, uh, in an international perspective. Uh, you know, there's been a lot written about. Uh, the, the world since World War II, and I, I felt that it, it doesn't uh, adequately capture the, the very important role that economic change played in this period. We, we in the United States and in all the wealthy economies went through a, a period of remarkable economic growth between 1948 and 1973. Uh, the world economy grew more rapidly than at any time before or since, and then after 1973 all of that stopped uh, growth slowed down considerably uh, due to a much slower growth in productivity and and my argument in this book is that we came to assume that that the very rapid economic growth between 48 and 73 an, an era when people often had wages growing 4 or 5% a year beyond inflation Uh, we came to assume that this was normal. Uh, In fact, it was extraordinary due to some uh, peculiar circumstances at the time. And we moved back into an era that we think of as as slower growing, but is actually what normal economies do most of the time. Mm. So my my point here in the book is that we've really gotten to have unrealistic expectations about... uh, economic growth and about government's ability to make the economy grow. Uh, You still see that, but people glibly say that uh, uh, the economy ought to grow 4%, 5%, 6%. In the recent election campaign, both uh, presidential candidates were saying those sorts of things. And I don't think it's really within the power of government to make that sort of thing happen. Uh, The the norm uh, around the world throughout history has been that in most times, in most places, uh, economies grow slowly, uh, interrupted by periods of very rapid growth, uh, due primarily to technological innovation. And I think that's what we can expect. Uh, It's a book about uh, how the economy has transformed in the post-war period, but also about the limited ability of government to do what we think it ought to do.
0: Excellent. Mark Levinson, we thank you so much for sharing your insight into an endeavor that really has changed the way the world does business. And we have a container uh, to give you. Uh, It's a gift. It's a manage this coffee mug. So uh, we're going to send that to you just for being our guest and, and with our thanks.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's been fun being with you.
0: All right. Thanks so much. And by the way, our listeners can get more information from your website, Mark. It's MarkLevinson.net. That's M-A-R-C-L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N.net. MarkLevinson.net. To claim your free PDUs for this podcast, just go to Velocityach.com and select Manage This Podcast from the top of the page. Click that button that says Claim PDUs and just click through the steps. That's it for us here on Manage This. We hope you'll tune back in on March 7th for our next podcast. In the meantime, you can visit us at velociteach.com slash manage this to subscribe to this podcast, to see a transcript of the show, or to contact us. And tweet us at manage underscore this if you have any questions about our podcasts or about project management certifications. We'd love to hear from you. That's all for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, keep calm, and manage this.